Uh, I do want us, uh, before we get into the message, to pray for Stephen Randall, who are off on a uh, kind of a prayer retreat for them at this time in their life. So we just really want to pray for them and ask the Lord to, to minister into them at this time. So why don't we do that, and then I'll get into the Word. Lord, we are grateful for your presence here among us, and uh, we again want to express to you how much we love you, we desire you uh, more than more than anything. And so, Lord, we, we pray that uh, your Spirit would uh, minister to us today through your Word. And uh, Lord, we do lift up Steve and Randall right now as they're together in retreat to pray and seek you. We ask, Lord, that your presence would be strong upon them in this time and that, Lord, they would hear your voice, that it would be a time to not only hear each other but to hear you. And so we bless them now in Jesus' name. And uh, again, Lord, we uh, we give you this time together. We pray that your, your spirit would speak to us through your word. Uh, we love you today, Jesus, and we uh, invite you now to minister to us. We pray it in your name. Amen. I want to read, uh, as we're getting into the letter of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, uh, I want to read just the first verse, uh, the beginning of uh, Titus 1.1. It starts out this way, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And uh, that last phrase I want to I want to focus on the truth, in other words the gospel that leads to godliness. So uh, a number of months ago I read an article and in it it told the story of a pastor who was teaching at a ministry school. And in this ministry school, made up of maybe 17 and 18-year-olds, he wanted to relate to them how the church has expressed itself throughout the centuries. And so he quoted uh, something that went like this. He said, uh, in the Middle East, the church began as a fellowship. And then he said it moved to Greece, and there it expressed itself as a philosophy. And then he said it moved to Italy, and there it expressed itself as a religion. And he said finally it came to America, and there it expressed itself as an enterprise. Well, there was a young lady, uh, actually the youngest student in the group, and she raised her hand kind of a confused look, and she said, and, and, the, and the professor, to make that a little clearer, the pastor said, an enterprise means a business. And so the young lady raises her hands, and she said, a business? And he said, that's correct. And she had this look of confusion on her face, and she said, well, isn't, isn't the church supposed to be a body? And he said, yes. And then she said, with more confusion on her face. Isn't a body that becomes a business a prostitute? At that point, he said, the whole class sat in silence because of her prophetic word, unintended prophetic word. 
And, and I think it's a prophetic word for us today because the question is, do we as the church, do we give ourselves over, do we sell ourselves to the culture around us? Which is a very important issue because of the culture around us. We are in a culture that's in a moral freefall. And, and the question is, do we find ourselves in a situation where we're, we're giving ourselves to this over-sexualized, secular, angry, divided, addicted, self-enriched, self-entertained, and self-centered culture? Uh, this culture is kind of coming at us like a tsunami. I, I, I was thinking about the... Uh, the hurricane that just hit Florida and how the waves just overwhelmed everything. And it seems like our culture is an aggressive culture coming at us. Can we withstand the culture? And, and maybe the question is, what kind of church can withstand the culture? Not only withstand it, but overcome it. And to answer that question is why we're looking at Paul's letter to Titus. Paul and Titus had evangelized, as Steve was telling us last week, on the island of Crete. Crete is a large island off the coast of Greece. And they had brought many to the Lord. Uh, the Cretan culture, as we heard last week, was a culture that was also in a moral freefall, very much like our culture. The difference is that they had been in that moral freefall for quite some time. As a matter of fact, they had hit rock bottom. And many of the believers that were coming into the church were really kind of coming in more like Cretans than Christians. And so Paul writes Timothy, who he left on the island to continue the work of evangelism as well as establishing churches throughout the island, throughout the towns on the island, the cities on the island. And in this particular letter... What you see coming over and over again is Paul expressing uh, the way the church should express itself. How the church should really express its life in the midst of this culture that was in moral freefall. And over and over again, the word that Paul is giving is that the church... In this kind of situation, or the church should always be a fellowship of godliness. We just uh, heard that Paul uses that in the very opening part of the scripture, of the letter. A truth that leads to godliness. Now, what is godliness? I say for us as Christians, godliness is this. An absolute devotion to Jesus Christ that leads... To Christ's likeness. A devotion to Jesus that leads to a life that's manifesting his life, his character through our lives. That's what godliness is. And that is what Paul wanted. And Paul felt that that kind of culture, that kind of counterculture in the church could withstand the Cretan culture and even overcome it. And I think it's true for, for us in this hour that the, the counterculture of godliness can withstand this culture. Now, Paul, and he, 
I think the reason he sees this, and it's kind of reflected in the letter, is that he feels like godliness is a, a much more attractive culture. <laughs> it's a much more attractive expression than the culture, the Cretan culture that was around the church, or even our, our culture. Uh, th- this word that we just looked at in Titus 1.1, Paul says this, a truth, which is the gospel, that leads to godliness. Now, why does, why does the gospel lead to godliness? I think we're, we're basically attracted to godliness. We, we come to know Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. And because our sins are forgiven us, that brings us into relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Once we come into that relationship... Because we see Jesus, because we see the beauty of who he is, we are attracted to give ourselves to him fully, full devotion to him. Jesus is Lord over our lives. And once we give ourselves to him in that way, then we are drawn to become more and more like him. Why are we drawn to become like him? We are made in the image of God. We are made for God-likeness. And Jesus is the image of God in the flesh. He has come as an expression of God in the flesh. Jesus is not only God in the flesh. Jesus is godliness in the flesh. And we are drawn to him. We are attracted to him. We are attracted to this kind of life because it's the life we're made for. This is who you're created to be. Uh, In the image of God, we are created to be Christ-like. And so that is one reason we we find this attraction, uh, that the Spirit is moving us to become more and more like Jesus in our lives. To become godly, to become a godly people, to become a godly church, a, a, a culture of godliness. But here's the deal, that... Godliness not only is something that we're attracted to as believers or led into as believers, it even attracts those who, are, who do not know Jesus. Uh, I want to uh, read a scripture that uh, Paul gives here that, that uh, speaks to that. It's not in the area that we're looking at, the part of, the, of Titus that we're looking at, but it's uh, found in the second uh, chapter of Titus. And here in this uh, particular section, uh, Paul is speaking to Titus about how to bring different people in the church into expressions of godliness in their life, a Christ-likeness in their life. And so he's going through that, and he's just finished talking about the slaves or, or, or those who are kind of on the lower rung of society who are now believers and, uh, and he says this to Titus, and, and in many ways I, I can see where uh, Paul's letter to Titus is, is really a, uh, a word or a method in evangelism. So he says this, he says, he instructs Titus, he says, lead the people into these acts of godliness, and then he tells Titus, do this, and this is uh, Titus 2.10, 
Just a phrase that I'm going to bring out of it. It's the New American Standard Bible. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So Paul is saying, if you can bring these people into a life of godliness, they will adorn the gospel. They will adorn the gospel and that will attract people into the church because it's a godly culture. You know, um, many times in the church, we try to adorn the church uh, with, with a lot of things. We might try to uh, adorn the church with, uh, you know, a good service, good music. We might want to adorn the church, uh, the building, so that it looks nice. Uh, we could even want to adorn the church with good coffee. So to attract people in, you know, and all of these things are good. But what Paul is saying here, that's more like adorning a tree, a Christmas tree with ornaments. And that's all right. It it attracts people. It attracts their attention. But Paul is saying, that's not the adornment I want. That's good. It's fine. And we we should have those things. We should have excellence as a church. But he says, what will really attract people is the adornment of godliness. It's not like the ornaments on a Christmas tree. It's like the apples adorning an apple tree. Because that is something that people would want to partake of. You don't want to partake of ornaments on a Christmas tree. But you want to partake of the fruit of an apple tree as it adorns the apple tree. And when people see the fruit of godliness, the culture of godliness, they're attracted to it. They want to become a part of it. They want to be in that because they're seeing something that they're hungering for in their own life. And so what Paul is saying here, it not only attracts us, but it attracts the folks who do not know Jesus. I want, to, I want to give a scripture that kind of emphasizes this. And let me give a spoiler alert. Uh, ladies, I'm not going Pentecostal holiness on you here. So, but uh, <laughs> some people want to go, huh? <laughs> but uh, it's uh, 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. He says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, take that passage and put it on the church. What he's saying is our beauty should not be our outward adornments, but it should be this inward adornment. Of godly lives. Because not only does God love that. But I think the world loves it. I think the world is hungry. For a culture. Of godliness. In this hour. They want to find something that. That carries a beauty to it. That they desire in this culture. That's kind of gone. Gone crazy. So. It is the way to adorn us, to adorn the church. I I saw this, or I've seen it a number of times when I've gone on mission trips, particularly into very poor countries, where 
the believers there don't have the money to adorn themselves with outward ornaments or to adorn their church in any way with outward decorations. But there is, it's almost like you see it clearer in that setting. There is a beauty in their lives that attracts you to them. Just, just a, a quiet, beautiful spirit that's in them, which is a, a sign of the, the godliness of that, of that congregation. So Paul says it's a much more attractive culture. But he also says this, it's a much more powerful culture. And uh, I, I saw this in this particular section uh, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul is talking uh, about leaders. He's telling Titus, these are the kinds of leaders that you need to develop at, at the church, in the churches that, you, that are established throughout uh, Crete. And in that section, one of the things he's saying, he's particularly looking at the, the pastor. But this is true of all leaders in the church. But he says two things about this particular position as a leader. The first thing he talks about is that this leader should have a certain character. And then he talks about the function of the leader. So he says that the leader, he uses two words. He should have character, which is the word elder. And he should be an overseer, which is his function to oversee the congregation. And basically what Paul is asking for as an elder, he's asking for someone who is seasoned in godliness. That's the kind of person that you want overseeing a fellowship of godliness. If we're we're going for this kind of expression of the church, this is the kind of person you want. And so Paul starts giving... uh, Descriptions are really qualifications that uh, of some of the things you would see in the life of a person who would fit being an elder in a church, who would fit being the pastor. I would say this is true of all leaders in the church, whether it's the pastor or anyone else in our capacities as leaders in this church. So as I was looking at these qualifications that he gives in, uh, in Titus 1, 6 through 9, what struck me as I was looking at these is that Paul was basically listing the fruit of the Spirit. That almost, I think you can make a case that all nine fruits of the Spirit are listed as he goes through these qualifications for the elder's life and what should his life look like. So, we're going to look at that, and I, uh, I have inserted into the Scripture uh, the fruit of the Spirit as I see it in this uh, particular passage. That's Titus 1, 6 through 9. And so he's talking about an elder and the qualifications. He says, first of all, an elder must be blameless. And here he's talking about blameless in the community that he lives in or she lives in. Uh, as the leader lives in this particular person, which really speaks of peace and goodness. They've they've lived a life of peace and goodness, and there's there's nothing to blame them for in terms of their life in the community. Uh, 
this uh, person is faithful to his wife. He's a he's a, a, a husband of one wife. And a man whose children believe, or the word could be whose children are faithful or trustworthy and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And what that's speaking of is that uh, this person is faithful, faithful to the family, faithful to his wife, as well as loving, uh, this loving faithfulness. That you see in their life. So faithful in love. In other words, fruits of the Spirit. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless this time in the church. Not just the community, but in the church. So a person of peace and a person of goodness. Not overbearing. A person who's kind. Not quick-tempered. A person who's patient. Not giving to drunkenness. A person who's self-controlled. Not violent, a person who's gentle. Not pursuing dishonest gain, a person who's self-controlled. Rather, he must be hospitable, a person who's kind. One who loves what is good, a person of joy. Who is self-controlled and upright, a person of goodness. Holy and disciplined. And that, to me, speaks of full devotion to Jesus. Holy and disciplined, wholly given over to Jesus, wholly given over to God in Christ and devoted to him. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. In other words, he's faithful to the word of God so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. And that's that's an interesting phrase, sound doctrine. Uh, the word sound means comes the uh, same word that we get hygiene from. So it's healthy doctrine. It's a doctrine that leads toward godliness. So he's giving himself to this, this gospel that leads toward godliness. And he refutes those who oppose it. So if this is the case, if Paul in this passage, speaking about an elder and his, qualifica- his qualifications, a leader and his or her qualifications in the church, then what he's showing us is that they're demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Listen, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit not only gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit, He gives us the fruit. Now, the gifts, I think you can make a case that the gifts of the Holy Spirit is, is really the ministry of Jesus being reproduced in our life. I can take you through Jesus' ministry and show you every gift of the Holy Spirit except the gift of tongues. But the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts are reproducing the ministry of Jesus in our life. But the fruit of the Spirit is reproducing the character of Jesus in our life. And so the Holy Spirit desires to manifest within us. Not only the ministry of Jesus, but the character of Jesus. Now, obviously, since we've come out of the, 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 the charismatic revival, the Pentecostal revival, there's been a great deal of emphasis upon the gifts, and rightfully so. As a matter of fact, last month we were looking at how we can pursue in a greater way the gift of prophecy. We want the gifts functioning in the church. But we should also have a desire 
for the fruit of the Spirit. This was the great emphasis in the Wesleyan revival under John Wesley. He was saying, you are filled with the Holy Spirit for holiness, for godliness, for living out the very nature and character of Jesus in your life. That this is the work of the Spirit as well as the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We can get excited about being a church of miracles and healings, and we should be. But can we not get excited about being a church of godliness? A church that's manifesting in our lives the very character of Jesus through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to give us that. To me, it's like, it's like this. If, 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 God, if you're sensing God wants to give you the gift of healing then at some point in your life, you need to start praying for the sick. You know, he's not going to just give you the gift of healing unless you give yourself to the gift of healing. So start giving yourself that. That's what we're talking about in prophecy. He's not going to give you prophecy unless you start giving yourself to prophecy, listening to the Lord and speaking what God is showing you. You give yourself to the gift and you begin to see it flow in your life. I think the same is true of the fruit of the Spirit. If God wants to bring kindness to your life, say, Holy Spirit, help me start giving myself to kindness until this becomes a part of who I am. Begin to, to move in my life in this area until it's, it's a part of my character. It's a part of who I am as a person. So this godliness is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. As we as believers are giving ourselves to what the Spirit is is moving in our hearts toward what he wants to bring into our life. Godliness is powerful because the very power of the Holy Spirit is behind it. It is a powerful culture because it is a God-empowered culture. So, Lord, we, that's one thing we want to seek the Lord for as a, as a church, this manifestation of godliness in our life. The final thing that I think Paul is saying in this scripture is that godliness should be desired. Uh, and this comes again out of the, the second chapter of uh, Titus. Uh, he's, uh, he speaks about Jesus there, and this is Titus 2.14. And he says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, are zealous for godliness. People who want to express in their life, they don't, they don't just want to express it, but the word he uses is, uh, this is the, English Standard Version, is zealous. I think the King James uses the same term. Zeal doesn't mean just desire uh, godliness, but it means to, to, to boil, to be hot, to glow, to be energetic, to be zealous for godliness. I remember one person, uh, an author, was talking about the early Methodist movement and uh, he was trying, he said there was a characteristic that moved throughout that movement. 
and this was a scholarly work, but the way he termed it was, everywhere I looked in the movement, there was a militant supernaturalism. (laughs) They were energetic, they were zealous, they were militant toward godliness. God, do this in us. Make us Jesus like you. We want Christ-likeness in our lives. And why should we have that zeal for godliness? Why should we have this fiery desire for it? Because it's dangerous, first of all, (laughs) it's dangerous to lead without it. Uh, Understand, people follow actions more than they follow words. (laughs) And that's why a leader in a, a fellowship of godliness should have a godly life because people follow those. They follow the actions more than the words. Uh, Paul encourages groups of, if, if you look at Paul's letter, not just to Titus, but to Timothy, which were written about the same time, uh, more so in Timothy, Paul encourages groups of leaders in the church. Of course, here he's encouraging this overseer. But he, he sees the importance of having a group of leaders in the church. And I think that's for two reasons. I think it gives the fellowship many more models of godliness than just in one person. But I think the other reason he wants groups is to keep them accountable to one another. Uh, Paul is not looking for a one-man show in leadership. He wants a a a group of leaders in the life of the community. As a matter of fact, David Paulson says this, of all the disciples, there was only one who was a one-man show. There was only one who, who really had leadership in several different areas, and that was Judas Iscariot. If you read Acts 1, when... Peter is talking about Judas's replacement. You'll notice that he he would function as an apostle. He functioned as an overseer. He functioned as a deacon. He functioned all three. And so the reason we have a variety of leaders in the church is for accountability, as well as uh, different expressions for people to see leadership within the life of the church. We need to desire godliness because it's dangerous to share the gospel or to minister without godliness. If you want to attract people to the, to the gospel, live a Christ-like life. Because Christ was the one, Jesus is the one who attracts people to the gospel. It's a dangerous thing to present the gospel without a Christ-like life. I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but I'm saying we, we need to be people that are showing these wonderful fruits of the Spirit within our life. It's a dangerous thing to minister the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The safest place to minister the gifts of the Holy Spirit is in the character of Jesus. In kind and good and gracious ways, not in some kind of 
ministering of the gifts for self-interest or self-promotion, but out of true love and, and kindness toward others. It's, uh, we need to desire godliness because it's dangerous to be the church without it. And here's why. The church could drift in to, uh, there, there's a, a passage in Second Timothy, which we're familiar with, which it says, a form of godliness without its power. Now, what does that mean, a form of godliness without its power? Well, uh, I think uh, the New Living Bible really, in its translation of that, catches it. He says, it says this, Second Timothy 3, 5. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Matter of fact, you don't have to tell people to stay away from people like that. People stay away from people like that. In, in, in a, a church that has become religious, or a person who has become religious, without Seeking the power of godliness. Uh, religion is simply the going through the forms, going through the rituals, going through the routines. That kind of church will not attract people, nor will it keep people. We should be a people who are seeking the power of godliness in our lives. Because that is the power that will draw people and will keep people as we're expressing the character of Jesus within our hearts and lives. Uh, you know, as I was looking at this particular passage, the Lord convicted me about some things in my own life. For example, I think sometimes in my life, I may have parented more by religion than godliness. Sometimes. Even in my pastoring, I had that happen at times. It might be interesting if we look back in our life and say, Lord, where have I missed this? Where have I been more religious than godly? And would you forgive me of those areas of missing you in, in that way and give me a heart, a true heart for godliness, for a godly life? A life fully given over to you and a life fully given over to Christ's likeness. I think that's absolutely essential for the time in which we're living. So here's what I'd like to do in closing this morning. I, uh, I would like uh, to just lead us in a prayer for those of you who would say, you know, I want to uh, I want to say to the Lord, God, I, I want to. I want to commit myself to you, Jesus, uh, uh, passionate devotion to you again, and I want to give myself to being like you, Jesus, Christ-likeness. I want to be a godly person. I want to be a part, Lord, of a, of a godly congregation that is expressing a counterculture that can withstand this culture and even overcome it. So here's what I'd like to do. If, if that's on your heart, I want to lead you in a prayer. And 
I just ask you to stand where you are, and we'll we'll pray this together, and um, and then uh, we'll go back into worship. I invite the worship team to come on up as uh, as we're doing this. So here's what I, I'd like to do as you're standing. is uh, lead you in this prayer and you just pray it after me. Before we start it, let me just pray first. Jesus, we love you. And we want everything in our life that you want for us. And so, Lord, as a, as a congregation, we're coming before you as a, as a commitment or a recommitment to give ourselves passionately to you, a passionate devotion to you, Lord Jesus, and a passionate devotion to giving ourselves to being Christ-like. So, Lord, as we uh, come before you, we pray now that you would... Uh, Graciously answer our prayer that we're about to pray. So just pray after me. I come to you, Jesus, this morning. Just pray that after me. Pray it out loud. I ask you, by your Spirit, Make me more like you. I eagerly desire your attractive and powerful life. Lord, save me from this culture and save me from religion. I want to be devoted to you and to your likeness by the power of the Spirit. So, Lord, we give you ourselves today. And we ask now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit may flow powerfully in this church to make us like you. In Jesus' name. We're going to go back into worship. You know, I was thinking this morning, if you'd like to kind of seal that prayer, uh, you might want to do that through communion. Uh, communion is an expression uh, of uh, Jesus' great sacrifice for us through his body and blood, this wonderful covenant that we're in, this new covenant with Jesus. And it might be good to uh, seal this prayer with uh, receiving communion. The communion elements are here. And I'll just bless them right now. Or if you want prayer, we'll have some folks here who will be glad to pray with you for ministry. And uh, so uh, let's just uh, pray right now. Lord, we thank you for this cup that represents your shed blood. And this bread which represents your broken body. And we pray now, Lord, that as we receive it, 
today, it would truly be a moment of grace that we receive into our lives, Lord, this, this, the uh, sealing of this prayer that we've just prayed. So we love you, Lord, and we, we trust you for what you're going to do in our lives in the coming days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may, you may be seated or stand for, for this time of worship.